Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Ed Simon about a fascinating book which has just been released, a fascinating book to read and also to look at. It's called Elysium, A Visual History of Angiology. Um, Ed, Ed Simon is the executive director of Belt uh, Media Collaborative and also editor-in-chief of Belt Magazine and an uh, emeritus staff writer at The Millions, which the New York Times has called the indispensable literary site. And this book is filled with references to pop culture, medieval history, literature, you name it. Anywhere there is an angel, there is a reference uh, to those works in this book. Ed, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really glad to talk to everyone here. Um, this is a fascinating book, Ed. And uh, But before talking about the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and also why you decided to write a visual history of angiology? Sure. So I kind of came to this subject uh, by circuitous route. I don't know that angelology is necessarily like a discipline that I would have expected for myself uh, to have written a book about. Uh, my own background is I, I come out of the academic world, uh, so I do have a PhD in English, uh, and I primarily uh, studied and wrote about 17th century literature, so certainly a literature that has a, a fair number of angels, um, John Milton you know, being a, a touchstone for me in my studies. Uh, but this book actually kind of came out, um, I, I think, out of the interests of symmetry almost, because I had previously written a book uh, called Pandemonium, a visual history of demonology. Uh, and this was kind of the obvious, uh, you know, sequel to that book in some ways. So the demonology title was something that I was, um, you know, kind of a bit of a passion project. Uh, and I had gone back and forth with a couple different publishers over the years until I ended up with Abrams to, to work on that. But that was such a kind of fascinating experience uh, that Elysium naturally kind of recommended itself, I think, by the by the nature of everything. And I think the reason, you know, reason why it's a, a visual history in particular, um, it's very much an art book in kind of the, in, in all senses of that phrase. Uh, it is uh, beautifully illustrated. I didn't make the illustrations, obviously. They're all kind of various artworks, uh, though I chose them. So I suppose that's that's something. But then the design people at Abrams are the ones who actually organized it throughout the book uh, in conjunction with the text itself. And I think that um, both demons and angels are a subject that are by their very nature kind of visually splendiferous. So to kind of not address that in some way or to not engage with it or give into it maybe even more, uh, I think would be kind of uh, only doing half of the project. So the the pictures and the text really are integral in terms of how they work together. I think. And uh, let's talk about angiology. I, I had never come across the word uh, or an- angelic poetics. In your introduction, you go on to talk about uh, in geology, what you mean by that? There are some principles, and then there are lots of new terms there as well. There was a term that I hadn't come across before, theophany. But anyway, it would be great if you could talk about what you mean by angelic poetics. What was your, let's say, framework for writing this book and the principles of of angelic poetics? Sure, a big part of this, I think, really the Elysium and Pandemonium, I think 
are kind of one book almost. Uh, I mean, it's a massive, huge book if it's one book. But uh, the the sort of way in which I wrote Pandemonium, the structure of the book, the way I organized the chapters, the kind of intellectual scaffolding for everything uh, was really mirrored exactly when I ended up uh, planning out and writing Elysium. So one of the things I do in Pandemonium is I have these principles of demonic poetics. Uh, and this is entirely like a critical neologism, but it was just a way in which I could kind of summarize my own approach to thinking about these sorts of things, these particular uh, kind of ineffable, theological, sacred, very difficult to kind of parse or conceptualize categories, right? Uh, and I wanted to do something similar with angelology. I also, I have to say that, like, I'm amazed that Abraham, because angelology, that's not my term, that's an actual discipline within theology but the fact that abrams was like fine with me using that word which is kind of like a difficult word to say and not a very common word is a credit to them kind of you know uh giving me a lot of independence with with this particular project so uh, the principles of angelic poetics as i came up with them were just kind of supposed to be broad parameters of my own thought in terms of how i think about something like angels so, you know, an example of them are I have for the first principle, angelology is intrinsically marked by paradox for they are beings that are both more human than the divine whom they are emissaries of and yet also radically different from us and, and so on. Uh, another one I have is I say that angels are vestiges of kind of a, a paganism in a historical sense or in the sense that they kind of offer um, transcendence through imminence, if it were, Right. Uh, or that angels are defined by a variety of connotations. This is the, the fourth principle I have here. So I say that they're messengers and guides, divine thoughts and conduits, uh, so on and so on. I have a principle where I say that angels deal with both metaphysics and ethics, that at a certain point they actually merge those two you know, separate ways of approaching reality into into one way of approaching reality so that's basically you know and, and i enumerate them in that first chapter but they're kind of like the rules of thumb that i came up with so that readers could understand my own particular approach to talking about angels which is by no means the traditional or orthodox or or literal in in any particular way uh theophany as a term refers to specifically whenever anybody has uh, an interaction with the divine. And frequently it's through what's interpreted as an angelic intermediary. So thinking of, um, you know, Gabriel appearing to uh, the Virgin Mary at the, uh, uh, you know, to tell her that she's pregnant with Christ. Or if you think about the angelic interactions that Ezekiel has in the Hebrew scriptures, or that uh, Muhammad has when the, the Quran is recited to him, or when Joseph Smith, uh, the founder of Mormonism, uh, encounters an angel he called Moroni, and the Book of Mormon was supposedly given to him, right? All of these instances are supposed to be instances of theophany, instances that kind of take you out of the regular scheme of things or the regular flow of time into something that's a little bit more sacred and, and holy, but also kind of alien and, and other in some ways as well. And um, so the... the in the past and also in the present there have been a lot of accounts of of encounters with angels 
what do you think these narratives mean? And do you think that these narratives within just sort of mediate the experience of divine for us humans? Yeah, I absolutely think that, um, you know, if you take a look at the kind of corpus of literature about, you know, interactions that people have interpreted as being angelic, there's a lot of different approaches somebody can take. There's a psychological approach or, or uh, you know, cultural approaches or whatever. And I don't think that those are illegitimate ways to talk about this phenomenon at all. But I think from my perspective as kind of a cultural historian and then maybe as a, a literary critic even more so, I interpret these instances as being kind of ways in which an individual human in our own finite sort of way can make sense of something that is far bigger than ourselves. So it's kind of like a, a, an instance of hyper-concentrated meaning or something. And I think that, uh, you know, traditionally in the scriptures, angels are intermediaries. They're, um, they're message givers. Uh, and I think what they really are is they're a way in which uh, finite humans can try and understand an infinite Godhead, right? It's a way that you can give something that is by definition unknowable and ineffable kind of a personality or a face uh, in a way that by a matter of definition, it doesn't actually have. And I think that's why it's so enduring uh, as a type of experience that people have, or at least want to have. And uh, there was another thing that, um, actually I came across this a few, a couple of months ago. You know, we always have these narratives about the progress of modernity and science and the key element of that is disenchantment. The magic is gone. But uh, I guess it was a couple of months ago I was talking to a friend and I came across a lot of academic books again that magic was actually an integral part of science or enlightenment in the 17th or 18th century. And again, despite all these uh, stories about this enchantment, we are still, it, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still with us in a way, despite all those religious reforms. So yeah, absolutely. Think, uh, oh, I'm sorry. What are you saying? No, go on. I'm, so I'm curious. And again, your book, when I read your book, especially the last chapter, you talk about angels in pop culture. It still has remained with us, these angels. What is the story behind that? I think, you know, I think it's interesting because when we talk about disenchantment uh, as like a kind of sociological concept or whatever, this idea that with modernity, there's an increase or a decreasing kind of belief in the sacred or the transcendent or magic or, or whatever word you want to use. And you're absolutely right that in the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, when, you know, we think of that as the age of reason or the enlightenment or the scientific revolution or whatever. Uh, but the sort of luminaries who we all talk about from that time period were really enmeshed uh, in a type of magical thinking in a lot of ways, right? So somebody like uh, Isaac Newton, for example, you know, he was a, a, a physicist and mathematician, but he was also an alchemist who was obsessed with the apocalypse, right? Um, you have, uh, in, in my book, I talk about Emanuel Swedenborg, who's probably not as familiar a figure, obviously, as Isaac Newton is today. And he's about maybe 75 years or so after Newton. Uh, but was a very well-respected botanist and geologist and engineer. He was kind of a polymath and a Renaissance man. Uh, and he also believed that he interacted with angels and tried to kind of bring the same sense of rationality to these, what we would interpret as very kind of irrational interactions or encounters or experiences. And I think the thing is, is these, these individuals at this time saw no conflict here. They didn't see a contradiction. It wasn't paradoxical. And in a lot of ways... 
the kind of perspective and worldview that they were building had its own kind of magical metaphysics to it in a sense, right? I mean, that was one of the criticisms people had about Newton's, uh, you know, theories about gravitation is that gravity as a kind of spooky unseen force had something that felt kind of magical about it, right? Uh, But nonetheless, I think there is a, a way in which over the past few centuries, our understanding of the sacred has altered or changed, or at least there's been a possibility of pretending that we can get away from these sorts of things. But I think if there's anything in modern culture uh, that really, you know, it really demonstrates the way in which we can't get away from the sacred or the divine or the angelic, as it were. And, And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's sort of omnipresence in popular culture from, you know, schlocky, awful entertainment like the American television show Touched by an Angel to something like Tony Kushner's magisterial play Angels in America shows that there's an enduring, uh, I think, psychological and cultural and intellectual and philosophical need for what things like angels supply to us in terms of a myth or in terms of a narrative. And uh, uh, when, when, how, how, I know it's a broad question, You've written a whole book about it. There are two separate chapters. But generally speaking, when angels are represented, how, how angels are represented differently, let's say, in popular arts and also in scripture. I'm mainly talking about maybe the when it comes to scripture, the functions they perform, like a messenger, punisher, witness. And it would be great if we could discuss an example. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that people will note is if they're if they're familiar with angels from popular culture. Uh, angels tend to be very gauzy and kind of maudlin and sentimental. They might be cute, right? Uh, it's something that goes back to the Renaissance, of course, the kind of uh, convention of depicting uh, angels as kind of fat, cute little babies or, or whatever. But then when you're used to that type of, you know, if you're a largely secular uh, person, and if you're used to that sort of connotation of angel, when you read the Bible, it's something entirely different where angels are terrifying, right? I mean, they're normally, uh, you know, they're depicted as these kind of many winged beasts or like, uh, you know, kind of abstract wheels rotating within wheels covered in eyeballs. And, you know, one of the most common things an angel will say uh, when they meet a, a person, meet a human in scriptures, they'll say, fear not, which implies that something about their appearance is worth being afraid of, right? So I think there is a way in which we have kind of uh, tamed angels in popular culture. We've made them a little bit more familiar or a little bit more human, whereas traditionally in theology, they're defined by being almost entirely foreign to us. They're very much other with a capital O. Um, But, you know, I think that some of the kind of maybe, you know, when you say that you're writing a book about angels, I think there's a... Uh, maybe a cringe or something that, that, you know, some people might have about it where it seems like a, a kind of a, a corny subject matter or whatever. And I think some of that is because of the more contemporary representations of angels. But historically, um, they, are, they are understood as something very different uh, than how they've come to be seen. And I, I remember, I guess, a few months ago, there was this person who had ask AI to create a picture of angels based on the Bible. And some of the pictures that came out were really, really scary. It was nothing like, uh, you, know, you said, the chubby, cute little uh, winged babies. 
No, and I mean, like every famous angelic encounter. I mean, the one exception, I guess, would be Mary with Gabriel. Is I, so I don't think that that is portrayed as like a terrifying instance. But you know, all of the uh, the prophets in the Hebrew scriptures, or Muhammad, or Joseph Smith, like that initial encounter is always frightening. You know, there's something always scary about it. Yeah, and, and why, why is that? That maybe religious representations of angels is usually associated with fear. I think some of it is a sense in which, you know, if if they are emissaries or messengers of God, there's a way in which, you know, God is supposed to be terrifying. And not even in like a old man in the sky kind of way where, you know, God's really powerful and, and we're obviously not, which is frightening enough, I suppose. But the idea that God as a being is so completely different from our experience that what makes God and other divine beings different from us isn't uh, an issue of degree, but of kind, right? That we're talking about something that is entirely outside of our understanding of the world. So I think that angels in a religious sense kind of express that difference and what is terrifying about that difference. I think in, in a contemporary state, um, we use angels for a different purpose sometimes at least. And that is to make something that's actually the opposite of what I just described. They're meant to be familiar or consoling or, um, you know, they, they have kind of a palliative function. Uh, and it's, it's obviously not how they're necessarily uh, appears characters in, in the Bible. Um, th- there's a quote in your book that I'd like to, I'd like you to talk about. So on page 46, um, this is a quote, is a text that says, Scripture was domesticated by the imposition of theology. A classical philosophy began to interpret the wild strangeness of holy texts to answer metaphysical questions with clarity and certainty. If Abraham was content to dwell within the mysteriousness of his desert visitors, Theologians of the first few centuries of the common era desired certainty about the nature of these incor- uh, incorporeal entities. Uh, can you talk about this, please? Yeah, so I think that one of the arguments that I make, and part of what I'm trying to convey in that particular passage, are the ways in which, you know, you have biblical narrative in scripture, and it's written by people who come from a spectacularly different time and place from where we come from. And, and it's so different and so ancient uh, that it's really, I think, hard for us to kind of get into the headspace of understanding what exactly they meant or how exactly they experienced the world. So I think when angels are written about in scripture, you know, we have a broad sense of what that can mean, but we don't really know what the experience of that means. Um, and I think that the the scribes who compiled scripture and that was later redacted and edited into this, this collection called the Bible, uh, I think that they were perfectly at home with irrationality. I think they were perfectly at home with magic. Uh, I, I don't think they needed to prove things to themselves or justify things to themselves uh, by recourse to reason or logic. I think that that was the milieu in which they lived. That was the epistemological framework of their understanding. 
I think that it was a given to them that divine things existed. It would be like denying the reality we see in front of us for them to pretend otherwise. I think by the first few centuries of the common era, by contrast, the sort of very beginnings of Christianity being kind of um, doctrinally defined by theologians, there begins to become an anxiety where there's a desire to put these ideas on a firmer rational footing. And some of that comes out of the fact that there's this uh, kind of incorporation of Greek philosophical ideas into, into Christianity and, and sort of, um, you know, where it wouldn't necessarily have existed before and, and, uh, and, and incorporation into it in, into Judaism as well. Uh, and I think that the theologians, what they were trying to do in terms of taming the angels is to make these weird stories that are in scripture basically make sense in some way. So if you think about the strangers that come to Abraham in the desert in the book of Genesis, uh, it's a very odd story where it's clear that they are divine emissaries in some way, but the kind of need to interpret it in a manner that is uh, like, like rigorous or, or has a certain has a certainty to it. I think that's something that you see uh, occur as theology really develops as a discipline, uh, and then it's something that people have been doing, you know, for two millennia after that. Um, I, uh, when I, when I was reading your book, the chapter on medieval uh, angels was most fascinating to me because I'm a enthusiast in uh, in the history of Middle Ages and also came across a couple of authors there, one of them I had interviewed before on New Books Network. I think, uh, yeah, the one with the book about medieval scribes, the hidden lives of medieval scribes. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so, I, I, and I really, really love the pictures that you've chosen for that chapter. Uh, so how, I know that again, it's a broad question. The idea is to encourage the readers to read the book. Uh, and again, I, as I said at the beginning, it's a fascinating book just simply to have on your coffee table. There are lots of beautiful pictures there to look at. Uh, broadly speaking, how are angelic encounters described and depicted in medieval uh, hagiography? So I think that, uh, you know, the, the depending on how we define the contours of the Middle Ages, uh, this is really a period where people um, and theologians became um, kind of detailed and strict in terms of defining these angelic hierarchies, right? Kind of, um, you know, defining what an archangel is in relationship to the seraphim and the cherubim and, uh, and so on. I think in hagiography is interesting because, you know, we're basically talking about narratives of saints' lives, uh, and sometimes these can come more from the margins uh, or they can be uh, accounts of people who aren't necessarily, quote unquote, theologically astute in the same way that the people who kind of build these intricate, you know, intellectual castles of angelic hierarchies or whatever. And so as a result, in hagiography, angelic encounters can sometimes, I think, maintain that sense of unease or disquiet or weirdness that we still see in scripture. So in medieval hagiography, uh, angelic encounters still have that uneasiness that I think theology isn't able to totally tame uh, to a certain extent or, or explain away or circumscribe or, or you know fit into a system of some sort. You studied literature. I studied literature myself, so I had to have a question. I had to bring a question from literature as well. And that is, 
well, of course, when you talk about angels, I, before even reading the book, I sort of expected to see something about Dante there, and it is. And you talk about um, the, the, the angelic representations in Dante's Paradiso. What is particular about that work of literature and special the, the the Paradiso part of it? Yeah, one of the things I, I loved about this is, you know, Dante obviously figures a lot in... Um, pandemonium as well and i you know i read a lot about inferno and i always think that first third of the divine comedy is obviously like that's the one that people are most drawn to certainly in a contemporary sense it's kind of the the sexiest part of the of the poem uh it it kind of mimics a modern horror movie or something to an extent so people i think are drawn to it but that last third the paradiso uh third is really one of the most lushly beautiful evocations of transcendence uh and he goes through the kind of levels of heaven just as he went through the circles of hell uh dante is guided here by beatrice who is his like unrequited love uh, as opposed to virgil who was his guide in in inferno but can't go to heaven because he's not he's not christian he's a pagan so he has to stay behind in limbo um and uh you know i think the most for me the most kind of uh, affecting scene is the final one in paradiso where when he sees the godhead it's this sort of like infinite circle uh and i think what is so fascinating to me there is dante writes a tremendously personal poem but it's one that's also at home with uh, abstraction and it's it's a difficult um tension right because obviously when you're writing about issues of divinity or writing about the angelic or whatever, the personal is, you know, it's, it's the human. It's why we're interested in literature to begin with, right? But that can very easily veer into, you know, at best a type of schmaltz and at worst a type of idolatry. So you kind of have to have that abstraction in there as well. And so this kind of like, you know, circular, you know, infinite, sphere of radiating love or whatever is is such a i think a, a really tremendously affecting and kind of beautiful representation of the transcendent let's talk about the enlightenment and the rise of science let's say how how, how did that influence the perception of celestial bodies and angels yeah i think this kind of goes back a little bit to what i was saying about um disenchantment and i think the kind of the um the myth you know the fact that there's a bit of a myth of disenchantment i think because what's so fascinating uh, about the enlightenment is it wasn't that people necessarily stopped believing in angels it's just that they applied the same way of approaching the world that they applied to electricity or magnetism or whatever uh, and applied it to angels as well uh and you know one of the things that i note in the book is that for all of the things that are uh, questioned or eliminated in in uh, Christianity, certainly, you know, through the Reformation, you know, the kind of attack on the belief in in the cult of the saints or the power of the sacraments or relics or whatever, you know, angels remain. You know, like Luther didn't get rid of angels; he wouldn't want to get rid of angels, uh, and Newton didn't get rid of them either, right? So angels kind of uh, continue as a subject of discussion in the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, but just the terms in which they're discussed, I think, change to a certain extent. So, you know, to go back to Swedenborg, he's an absolutely fascinating figure because he writes these kind of um, intricate 
accounts of his beliefs in angels and sort of their metaphysical properties and so on and so forth. But he does so in a manner that's familiar to anyone that knows anything about the the history of science in the uh, 18th century. And I should say, I'm not saying right now that Swedenborg was accurate or that he was describing something quote unquote real uh, or anything like that necessarily, but the language in which he did choose to write about this, you know, kind of esoteric occult subject is the same sort of language that somebody would recognize in the writings of a, of a Newton. Um, so I think that angels kind of, you know, they remained, they just, they kind of converted. They just sort of changed their MO during the enlightenment uh, more than anything. Uh, and then, you know, Swedenborg has a, he's like one of the most important or influential figures that I think most people have never heard of. You know, he has a tremendous influence on someone like William Blake, the poet, uh, he has an influence on Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. So he kind of endures in a shadow way uh, in that manner. Uh, and the denomination which he founded, the new church, actually still exists. Um, but it's it's very much committed to this idea that you can rationally talk about something like angels in the same way that you can rationally talk about, you know, electrons or atoms or evolution or, or whatever. Another part of the book that I really love, and that was something I'd seen before, but I never really paid attention to, was a female representation of angels and its association with the rise of nationalism. And I guess the famous one that uh, I don't remember the name of the painting, but the famous French painting. Yeah, that, uh, the, yeah. Uh, is it uh, Delacroix, the uh, Liberty is leading the. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this was in the in the same chapter on uh, the Enlightenment and angelology, is sort of thinking about how representations that we would very clearly um, at least at one point interpret as angelic. So kind of like beautiful, pure, perhaps virginal women who embody uh, goodness in some sort of way, right? That that was very easily appropriated by kind of, um, you know, movements for national self-determination uh, and revolutionary movements in the 18th century and then through 19th century romanticism. Um, so something like, uh, like Liberty in, uh, in France, you know, she has this Phrygian cap on, uh, she's sometimes bare breasted, sometimes not. She's hoisting a tricolor, uh, and she's supposed to be a, a woman who embodies, you know, revolutionary ideals of, um, Liberty, what is it? Liberty, fraternity, I'm forgetting one, uh, equality, uh, Liberty, equality, and fraternity. There we go. Um, you know, she's obviously kind of like, um, you know, a, an angel to a certain extent in the way in which she's represented. Uh, and this is not, you know, unique to France by any means. You've got um, Britannia in Great Britain. You have uh, what is sometimes called Columbia uh, in the United States was maybe later replaced by the Statue of Liberty as a kind of similar uh, way of representing those sorts of things. So I think what I'd emphasize with that is not necessarily the people who, you know, and it's not like one single person conceived of these ideas as symbol, symbols. They sort of collectively emerge, I think, kind of out of a given cultural moment. Uh, but the fact that they were using a visual idiom that would be immediately emotionally apparent as something that's kind of like an angel uh, is where it gets a lot of its power from. And uh, 
in, in, in the final parts of the book, you had this picture of this one of my most favorite movie, and I think it's a very it's a movie everybody uh, has seen somehow. It, it's a Wonderful Life, and the famous uh, angel there. Uh, we talked about it at the beginning of the interview that we, despite the disenchantment and the rise of modernity and science and everything, we were still fascinated with these uh, creatures. And maybe in more modern times or in pop culture, they have taken a different form and shape as opposed to the biblical ones or the classical ones. Uh, has there been a radical change in, in, in the representation of angels in pop art, do you think? I think that a lot of the kind of um, the way we think of angels in contemporary pop art, a lot of it, I think, goes back to the 19th century, really. I, I think it's kind of a product of a certain um, romanticism that has really just endured for about a century and a half. Uh, so sort of the sentimental angels, the, the angel as an emissary of love or as a guardian. I mean, belief in guardian angels is a theological concept and it goes back you know, very far. But it becomes really popular as something that people talk about uh, during the 19th century. And obviously, like a character like Clarence in uh, It's a Wonderful Life um, is a type of guardian angel, right? Now, he's, a, he's kind of a, a foolish and funny guardian angel. And he's, a, he's portrayed as like a little dim-witted, but not as dim, you know, not actually dim-witted, I suppose, ultimately. Uh, but I, I do think that a lot of 20th century pop culture kind of carries over those same sorts of things um, from the previous hundred years. And I think It's a Wonderful Life is, is a fascinating example. I mean, it's a it's a movie, you're right. I mean, everyone's seen it. It's aired in the United States normally um, on Thanksgiving, I think, in kind of anticipation of, uh, of Christmas. And uh, I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen the movie. I, I mean, dozens of times, I'm sure. Uh, and it sometimes gets dismissed because I think it is so omnipresent and people kind of think of it as being schmaltzy or, or saccharine or something. And it's really a, like a quite radical movie in a lot of ways. I mean, it's obviously it's like economically and politically uh, radical in some ways with the sort of character of Mr. Potter, who's this, you know, clear, nefarious capitalist that is trying to kind of sully the, the town. Uh, but then it's also disturbing in a kind of metaphysical sense as well. I mean, Clarence comes um, to the Jimmy Stewart character when he's about to kill himself. Right. So as a Christmas movie goes, it's already very profoundly dark. Um, but then I think that the whole kind of, you know, him seeing a town that what the town would be like, had he never been born, like all of that is like a fascinating kind of almost experimental narrative to a certain extent. And I think that Clarence, as the kind of like holy fool almost uh, is really an intrinsic part of it. I mean, his character reminds me a lot, if you're familiar with the kind of tradition of the holy fool, where it's sort of somebody who seems um, dim-witted or, or foolish or jovial, um, but then has a, a profound sense of the numinous, right? And is kind of a, like a saint almost, uh, not in spite of, but because of those kind of foolish qualities. I see a lot of that, in Clarence, but it's interesting because it's transposed onto a, an angel, you know. Um, before we come to the end of this interview, I always ask if there's any other book you're currently working because you wrote a book about demons, this one about angels. What should we expect next? 
Yeah, so I have a, uh, I always have a couple different um, irons in the fire. Uh, I have the next book that's actually coming out will be in January, uh, and it is a, a book called Relic, uh, and it's part of um, Bloomsbury Academics Object Lesson Series, which is an incredible series of short little books that are all on um, single objects. You know, like there's one on like like golf balls or television or whatever. And it's kind of a cultural history of that object. So I, I did uh, relic the idea of like sacred objects. Um, and so that's out in January. And then currently we're, we're just in kind of, I don't know if the term would be post-production or whatever. That sounds a little too cinematic, but um, we're currently finishing up uh, a book called devil's contract uh, from Melville House, which will be out in July of this coming year. And this is going to be the first broad, popular cultural history of the Faust legend. So I'm, I'm very excited for that book to come out. Wow, great. And hopefully I'll be able to talk to you about those books soon on New Books Network. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Sure. Thank you so much for having me.